Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast, a deep dive rewatch podcast, spending time with America's favorite radio station, WKRP in Cincinnati. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm his wife, Donna. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the trivia, the characters, and the details that have made WKRP one of America's favorite syndicated sitcoms for nearly 40 years. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast. Donna, what are we talking about today? We're going to be talking about I Do, I Do for Now. It aired the 23rd of April, 1979, written by Hugh Wilson and Tom Chihok. Story editors were Tom Chihok, Bill Dial, Blake Hunter, and Emily Marshall. Directed by Will McKenzie. Jennifer receives an unexpected visit from someone she knew years ago. He reminds her of an agreement they made when they were younger. Johnny gets mixed up in Jennifer's story, and an interesting evening follows. We also get our first look at Jennifer's apartment. And we've got a lot of great stuff right from the top, starting off with our title is patterned after the title of what, by all accounts, is a pretty bad movie from 1976 called I Will, I Will for Now, which starred Elliot Gould, Diane Keaton, and Victoria Principal. So that's where our title came from. Also, right at Fade Up, we see a close-up on Hoyt Axton playing the guitar. Well, Tom Chihawk told us that guitar was a gift to Hoyt Axton given to him by Janis Joplin. It's something Hoyt told Tom on the set. And we have got some great stuff with Tom Chihawk. After all of his great stories from Who is Gordon Sims, you'd think he'd have run out, but we're not even close Tom remembers getting the nod as writer on this episode because he was in the writer's room and he was owed a script. It wasn't an unusual situation. Well, Gordon Sims was my first pitch and my first script, I think I wrote. And then, uh, and I think they owed me a couple of scripts. And so this one came out of nowhere and I think it was it was a kind of a story. It wasn't a story that I actually pitched. It was a story that was just floating around the room that we all picked up on. And I think Dial had a lot to do with it, too. He was kind of taking the point on that. I don't know why we looked at Dial as, a, as the senior, I guess because he was the closest to Hugh. This was a different process from Gordon Sims. As Tom remembers it, He didn't even pitch this idea. Dial probably pitched I Do, I Do originally, and then they gave it to me because I had to have another script in the back. That was in the back nine, right? Yeah. 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 Some ideas just keep floating around the writer's room and nothing happens with them. When the WKRP crew got back from the mid-season hiatus in early 1979, Tom says the idea for I Do got handed to him. We were coming back. We needed shows. 
This one had been floating around. And then they said, Tom, you go and outline this one. And I did, brought it in, wrote the script, dial wrote, rewrote it. We, then we all rewrote again. Then we put it on the floor and then the actors really had fun with it. Then we found Hoyt and that was, you know, pretty much the way it went. Tom said that I Do is a great example of the collaborative way things worked on the WKRP set. That was a show like I would say you're seeing the best of everybody who was on the show, from the actors to the writers to the directors. It's amazing to think how young and inexperienced Hugh Wilson's writer's room was during this first season. Tom told us how Hugh justified hiring him, Blake Hunter, and Bill Dial for the writer's room. Well, what happened was Hugh gave, Hugh and Gary on the Tony Randall show gave Blake a script, gave me a script, and gave Dial a script. And the way Hugh justified us as these unknown writers to Grant and CBS is that these three writers wrote the best Tony Randall shows that we <laughs> we had. There you which go. I don't think it was I don't think mine was the best, but it was my first produced show. And Blake, I don't know what Blake wrote, and I don't know what Dial wrote, but we all wrote one. We'll have more with Tom throughout the episode, but now it's time to head to the lobby. We open in the lobby with a man sitting on the bench playing a guitar. Which seems a little odd. Jennifer walks in and kind of gives him a double take and says hi. Jennifer, no recognition. So the man seems to want to be recognized by her, says hey again, and this triggers something in Jennifer. TJ? Is that you? You got it, darling. T.J. Watson in the flesh. T.J. Watson is played by Hoyt Axton. Hoyt was born in 1938, and he died in 1999. And I would call Hoyt a musician who got into acting. He did both and was pretty prolific in both, but I really consider him a folk music singer-songwriter, and the whole film and television thing was kind of an add-on to that. His mother, May Boren Axton, wrote more than 200 songs, including Heartbreak Hotel for Elvis. She introduced Elvis to Colonel Tom Parker. And as we hear right in the opening moments of the show, Hoyt was known for an earthy style and a powerful voice. His biggest hits were for other people. He wrote Joy to the World and Never Been to Spain, both made famous by Three Dog Night. Made famous by Steppenwolf, No No Song. And I said, No, 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 I don't smoke it no more. I'm tired of waking up on the floor. It was Ringo Starr's Greenback Dollar. And I don't give a damn about a greenback dollar. 
spend it fast as I can. The Kingston Trio. His TV appearances include both dramatic and music-related. In 1963, he appeared in the story of a folk singer. He made a Hootenanny appearance in 1965. He was on Bonanza, uh, as well as I Dream of Jeannie, McLeod, Dukes of Hazard, and many more. He had 23 total TV appearances. He appeared in the movies Smokey, The Black Stallion in 1979, Heart Like a Wheel in 1983, Gremlins in 1984, and We're No Angels in 1989, among many others. He had 24 total movie appearances. Even if you don't think you're a Hoyt Axton fan, you've heard him before. That's Hoyt's voice you hear singing Head for the Mountains in the Bush Beer commercials. Head for Bush Beer. Head for the mountains. He also appeared in McDonald's, Pizza Hut, and FTD Florist commercials. Axton named his record label Jeremiah after the bullfrog he wrote about in the smash hit Joy to the World. Axton struggled with cocaine addiction, which is reflected in several of his songs. Both Hoyt and his wife were avid users of marijuana for stress and pain control. Uh, It was at a time, though, when it was not legal. In February of 1997, they were both arrested in their Montana home for possessing more than a pound of marijuana. Axton died in 1999 at the age of 61 after having two heart attacks Within two weeks. In 2007, both Hoyt and his mother May were inducted posthumously into the Oklahoma Country Music Hall of Fame, located couldn't be anywhere else. It's in Muskegee, Oklahoma. Hoyt Axton seemed like an odd choice to write a script around. He's not a rocker. We asked Tom Chihok if this script was written with Hoyt in mind. No, it was not a vehicle for Hoyt. I know that. Okay. Um, I think Hoyt fell into place because we were looking for, I think at that time, we were looking for stunt casting. We needed something. And Hoyt was the biggest star we could get our hands on, biggest music star. Hoyt's appearance coincided with the release of his album, Rusty Old Halo. That was the first release on his own label, Jeremiah. The song Della and the Dealer was the first single released from Halo. Now, we're used to music stars lip-syncing on TV, but it looked like Hoyt was really playing. We had to ask Tom, was he? The last one in the booth, we dubbed later because we enhanced it and put all the the stuff in. Well, there's a a real involved music track. It's got drums and other instruments and everything in it, yeah. But when he's sitting in the lobby, and that he's just doing that. Yeah, he's just doing that. Well, let's get back into the lobby where Jennifer has finally recognized TJ and she asks him what he's doing here. Now, is that any way to say hello to an old boy from down home? TJ explains that he told her he would be here, but it's been a long time since Jennifer left West Virginia. Hmm. I thought I'd waited long enough for you to keep your promise. Oh, uh, well, what promise was that? To marry me. Don't you remember? Uh... You're Uh, speechless, aren't you? (laughs) That's all right, darling. Believe me, you do not have to say a word. Jennifer's shocked and can't catch her breath. She's having difficulty speaking, but she tells TJ that she can't marry him. TJ asks her why not. She's in a panic. She's grasping at straws and... Here comes a straw. Johnny enters and walks right between them. Uh, Because... uh, 
and he starts going through the newspaper looking for the sports page on Jennifer's desk. He is standing right between two people having a conversation. Well, he did say, excuse me. It seemed a bit rude, though. But (laughs) Jennifer takes advantage of the situation and just grabs Johnny. Because I am already married to this wonderful man right here. Hello, sweetheart. (laughs) Jennifer grabs Johnny by the shoulders, turns him around, wraps her arms around him, and gives him a long, sensual kiss on the lips. She is buried in mustache. (laughs) When I saw that, I thought, wow, she is deep into the mustache. When Jennifer lets go, Johnny seemingly, for the first couple of seconds, unfazed. He goes back to looking through the newspaper. Then it hits him (laughs) what has happened, and he goes completely limp. He faints. It is just the funniest thing. He crashes to the floor at TJ's feet. He takes the papers, the blotter, everything on Jennifer's desk goes with him. And I swear to you, when Hoyt Axton looks down at him, he looks away from the camera because I know he is breaking. I I don't know how he would not be. And that takes us through our cold open, and here comes our theme song. WKRP in Cincinnati. When we come back, Travis is entering the lobby just in time to see Jennifer picking Johnny up off the floor. (laughs) He rushes over to help, and we see Johnny's face with this goofy smile as, as they're lifting him up off of the floor, and they set him in Jennifer's chair Propping his feet up on her desk. <laughs> that, that look on his face just kills me every time they pull him up into that chair and bust me up. So Travis looks at TJ and Andy looks a little suspicious and kind of says, Who are you? So Jennifer makes the introductions. I guess, you know, Andy coming in and finding Johnny on the floor and this big guy standing over him, uh, it feels a little threatening. But TJ tells Andy he's a singer. And Johnny is off in La La Land. This is the happiest day of my life. (laughs) Is it now? So Jennifer, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Jennifer's kind of scrambling. She needs to get Andy caught up on the story. Johnny and I are married. Have I ever mentioned that to you? (laughs) And enter lesson Herb. Watch out. I think. It's time! Herb Darling, fashion alert. Shades of gray, white, and black plaid jacket with black velvet patches on the elbows and the right side of the front up by the shoulders, as well as velvet patches on the corners of each pocket, blue, gray, and black striped tie, light blue pants, a white belt, and his white shoes. This one, it is the coat. The coat is really making this one happen. And he's got something happening on this coat that we've seen on that other one. I think I called it a Hall of Fame coat a couple of episodes ago. It's down over that right shoulder. It's that patch. Yeah. This one. I asked you, why is it only on, on one side? Well, I went looking for that. And this comes from hunting coats. When you would put the butt of a shotgun or a rifle into that shoulder, that was added protection. And it was usually a piece of calfskin that they would stitch over to protect the fabric of the coat so that you Ah. wouldn't 
damage your coat as you were doing your uh, your shooting. So that got carried over, unfortunately, into men's fashions, and we're seeing that now on some of Herb's coats. Well, Herb is arguing with Les. Park that motor scooter in my space one more time, and I'm running over it. That is not a motor scooter. It's a mobile news unit. <laughs> the mobile news yeah, unit. Yeah, Les's mobile news unit. But I was wondering, <laughs> okay, so they just come walking in, in the middle of this conversation. Didn't they just take a 14-floor elevator ride? Wouldn't they have discussed this on the way up? They probably discussed it all the way up. And are continuing yeah, to discuss it. I'm oh, thinking. hey, did you check, Les? Here we go. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye Newshawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now, here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nessman. Left side of neck. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nessman. Vampires in Les's neighborhood? <laughs> Don't know what's going on with Les no, there, no. but it looks bad. Maybe he's hiding a hickey. That could be as well. <laughs> Back onto the horse after that date with Jennifer, or maybe he's finding somebody. <laughs> so Jennifer's patting Johnny on his face face, says he's coming around, he's going to be fine. And Les asks, what's going on? Uh, Jennifer's husband here is taken ill. Husband? Where? <laughs> Herb is upset. Immediately. What? <laughs> Herb's, all of Herb's radar went into the red right there. Carlson comes out of his office. He goes over to Andy, who's leaning on the filing cabinet. Now, Andy is trying to figure this out. He's scratching his head, too. He's got some information, but he hasn't put all of the pieces together, so Art asks Andy, what's going on? Uh, well, sir, near as I can figure out, uh, Johnny's sick. Johnny agrees, nods his head up and down emphatically. And I got to tell you, Johnny has some visuals, especially in this scene, just nodding, that are so funny. <laughs> just moving his head that are hilarious. Well, Carlson points to TJ and he asks, who is he? Only Art does it kind of under his breath to Andy so as to not let TJ right, hear it. it. Yeah, he kind of whispers it, but Herb standing over across the room has to jump in. We don't know. <laughs> oh, sweet Les. Jennifer and Johnny are married. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, isn't that wonderful? Well, Carlson shakes Johnny's hand and he kisses Jennifer, the bride, on the cheek, Unfazed. congratulates them both, and then he escapes to his office. Herb's chasing after him, saying he wants to talk to him, but Carlson <laughs> goes in and quickly slams the door. Just shuts Herb right <laughs> off. But Art is so completely unfazed by the news that Johnny and Jennifer are married. He just accepts it, gives her a kiss on the cheek, and he wants out of there. Yeah, I think he likes being clueless. Herb turns around to the assemblage. Well, I, for one, am not buying any of this. These two are not married. And not. No. Oh, yes, we are. We just kept it a secret. <laughs> so this whole time, Johnny has been holding Jennifer's hand, and he keeps kissing it again and again. He's just smooching <laughs> her hand. Which is and... driving her crazy. He tries to separate Johnny's and Jennifer's hands, and Johnny keeps kissing and ends up kissing Herb's hand by mistake. Get out of here. <laughs> And Johnny's glasses kind of come off, and it, it, he's straight. It's really, it's a great scene. Herb could have slapped Johnny, and he would still be smiling. There's, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Johnny is just so over the moon right now. So Andy jumps in. Herb, Les, why don't you take Johnny on down to the bullpen? Oh, yeah. Now, Johnny, look, go get him some water. 
This is where, again, we get Johnny getting big laughs just by shaking his head. He's leaning back. He's got Jennifer's arm on each shoulder, and he's shaking his head no and hanging on to Jennifer. So Les grabs Johnny's feet. Herb grabs the back of Jennifer's chair, and they roll Johnny through the door as he is waving to Jennifer. Jennifer is waving back. This is the start of a ton of bits they are going to get out of that chair. Who knew that an office rolling chair could be so much fun? Oh, and it's hilarious. Andy says that he will be in the bullpen if he's needed. He makes his exit and leaves TJ and Jennifer in the lobby. TJ is not happy, and you can tell that he's not quite believing any of this. Jennifer, is that man treating you all right? Oh, TJ, you have nothing to worry about. Well, I just want you to be happy now. Oh, yes. Yes. Yes, we are so very happy. Jennifer assures TJ that they are so, so happy and tries to send him on his way. Sure, remember me to your mama and everybody. How is she anyway? Oh, mama's doing fine. She's still up in the Correctional Institute up in Uh Salem. (laughs) Jennifer hands TJ a suitcase (laughs) and his guitar. She's ushering him toward the door. Mama's good people. Uh, So Salem that he mentioned is a city in Harrison County, West Virginia. The Salem Correctional Center and Jail is located one mile west of Salem in Harrison Doddridge County, West Virginia. The facility is located on a beautiful 61-acre tract of land. It was formerly known as the West Virginia Industrial Home for Youth until July 1st of 2013. So that might be where Mama's hanging. I don't know. TJ sits back down on the bench. This is going to take some getting used to. You're being married and all. TJ's a man of few words. He explains he tried to write some letters to Jennifer, but he couldn't get the words on paper. However, he did write some songs about it, which he is more than ready to start playing. He puts one foot up on one of the chairs there in the lobby and starts to strum his guitar. Well, Jennifer stops him. TJ, look at my desk. See, all that work is just piled up. If you don't get going, you're going to miss your bus back home. She could not be more obviously hustling the man out the door. <laughs> I'll just leave. I'll go catch my bus. Well, TJ walks out the door. (sighs) Jennifer looks relieved, and she's kind of leaning on her desk, and then TJ sticks his head back in. I mean it. You know, we're only like five minutes into this show. I don't think the man's leaving. (laughs) I'm never, ever coming back. Well, next scene, we are in the bullpen. They've got Johnny laying on the couch. Bailey is sitting beside him with a cup of water. Les is behind Bailey. Andy is leaning over the couch. Herb is at Johnny's head. Jennifer is mine. Always has been, always will be. I mean, I have squatter's rights on Jennifer. Okay, the term term Herb used here is a little disturbing. Squatter's rights on Jennifer. (laughs) That just sounds bad, even if you don't know anything about any of those words. But we had to look up squatter's rights. What is Herb talking about? Well, it is the occupation of derelict land or an empty building that someone occupies without the permission of the owner. This is what Herb is claiming about Jennifer. Author Robert Neuwirth says that in 2004, it was estimated there were one billion squatters worldwide. Squatting happens all over the world when homeless people find empty buildings or land, or salespeople at radio stations find, I don't know, receptionists. <laughs> what did you just say? I was kind of just sitting here. What did you just say? You didn't hear it. 
I caught you off guard, didn't I? Yes, you did. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, Herb is not happy at all. And Les tells Herb that they should be happy for Johnny and Jennifer. <laughs> that was not in the outline. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, and Herb is not happy. Happy? Happy? Herb, I am sure there's a simple explanation for all this. He's losing it. And he says... He's looking forward to the explanation, and Johnny is on board with that, too. It's here that Jennifer enters. Johnny? Darling. (laughs) I think I owe you an apology. Don't apologize. Just hold me close. Herb says that he wants an apology. Well, everybody, it's really a long story. She sits down and puts Johnny's head in her lap, and she starts explaining. He's from my hometown, Rockthrow, West Virginia. And I get the feeling Johnny's not on the air right now. But I kind of thought it was in the morning. Yeah, they were all arriving for work. It seemed like it. I thought Johnny's board shift was probably still going on, but he doesn't seem to really care. He's into this story. Well, TJ was my big brother's best friend. We did look into Rock Throw, and as far as we can tell, Rock Throw is fictional, but there is a rock, West Virginia. It's a small town located on the Bluestone River in southern West Virginia. It's really beautiful. Almost heaven? Yeah, West yeah. Virginia. Almost heaven. West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. And there are cabins for rent near Norfolk, West Virginia, and one of the cabins is named Stone's Throw. <laughs> You're reaching. I found that. <laughs> And it looks lovely with a jacuzzi, a hot tub, a fireplace. Yeah, as far as I can tell, there is no rock throw West Virginia, but I do know where I want to go for our next vacation. All right, send me the links. (laughs) All right, we had to ask Tom, was there any significance to the name rock throw? Not that I know. Probably, again, that sounds like Dial. Anything of that Southern stuff, Dial was a real Southerner. Rock throw, you know, Virginia, it sounds like him. He'd come up with all those really strange... He was our John Lennon. Well, Jennifer starts explaining that TJ was her big brother's best friend, and when she was little, he asked her to marry him, and she said okay. Well, I thought we were just playing, but he took me seriously. She'd forgotten all about it, but TJ hadn't. And Johnny just happened to walk out and be there, and... Here we are. Bailey asks if TJ is gone. Yes, he's gone now. I'm just glad he didn't do anything rash. I don't know what Bailey's thinking here, but man, she's setting Herb (laughs) off. I guess there's nothing left to do now but consummate the marriage. Bailey. (laughs) Johnny's now sitting up and he's concerned. What, What do you mean? Rash. Jennifer tells Johnny that that mountain of a man, TJ, is really sweet. It's just that the Watsons are a bit... High strung. Is this guy dangerous? They've had their explanation and they all head back to work. (laughs) Would you take my chair back? Yes, dear. Johnny leaves the bullpen, rolling Jennifer's chair behind him. Art comes running around the corner (laughs) in the hallway and he falls right over the desk chair. We see him through the windows of the bullpen. He takes a face plant, jumps up, and comes right on through the doors. They are getting so much out of that chair. We had to ask Tom, was he writing a bunch of chair gags? That wasn't written. That was obviously something, a gag they put together on the set. You know, those guys were really creative people. Howard Gordon was wonderful. Um, 
Tim was great. They were all just really like and 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 uh, uh, Herb and Les. Frank Frank Bonner. Frank Bonner. Frank and, and Les is. And Richard Sanders. Richard Sanders. Richard Sanders. Yeah, yeah. Well, Carlson comes on into the bullpen. He's out of breath. There was no break. He hit that, did he that little jumped thing. Jumped up, came right on in. Jumped up and continued on in. Oh. Look, Jennifer, it's none of my business if you're married. Oh, I can explain. Or that. who you're married to, but that big guy, he's back. What? Yeah, he's sitting in the lobby, singing. So now we all head back out into the lobby. Because the big guy's back. Yes. And we find Johnny sitting in Jennifer's rolling chair. We're not <laughs> done with that yet. He's right by TJ, who's sitting on the lobby couch, and he's playing the guitar. He starts singing Jealous Man by Hoyt Axton. You got the knife, I got the gun. Come on, boy, we're going to have a little fun. I die for love. If you don't want to meet me in the alley tonight, too late for talking and ready to fight, leave her alone. Jealous Man was on the album The A&M Years, released in 1976, and it's a short little thing. It clocks in at 133, according to the Jeremiah label on the single. Well, everyone comes running out in the lobby, but where's Travis? Yeah, Andy was there when he heard that the big guy was back, and they all ran out of the bullpen, but now he... I guess just went back in his office or something. He's the only one not out there. When TJ finishes, Johnny claps very enthusiastically. (laughs) TJ asks Johnny if he liked it, and Johnny says, oh, that's nice, real nice. And TJ tells him that he wrote it. Johnny gets up to leave, but TJ puts his hand on Johnny's shoulder and pushes him back down on the bench. TJ tells Jennifer he needs to talk to her and even uses her middle name addressing her. Jennifer Elizabeth... I need to talk to you. Everybody starts to leave, but Jennifer needs the backup. She grabs them all, tells them all to come back, kind of gathers them all behind her over in front of the filing cabinets, and she hooks her arm into Mr. Carlson. So she's got everyone assembled except for Johnny, who is still sitting in the rolling chair over near TJ. Uh, TJ, all of these people here are like my family. So whatever you have to say to me, You can say to them, too. (laughs) When she comes to the end of that sentence, Johnny holds out his hand to her. She reaches out and pulls him over into the group. He just rolls right across, (laughs) clinging to Jennifer's hand. Now, who knew an office chair could be this much fun so we had to ask, Tom, where did this one come from? I can't imagine us writing that, but I think, you know, it probably happened. They probably It probably was written that they all moved Johnny over, and he was probably in rehearsal sitting in his chair, and then they just kind of dragged him over, and we laughed, and we kept it in. It sounds like a lot of funny people being allowed to have fun. Could this be the influence of director Will McKenzie? Will now that you say that, probably came up with all that shtick or encouraged all that shtick in I Do, I Do. All the tripping and all the wheelchair stuff because he understood how actors could have fun on the set and wanted to have fun and encouraged them to have fun. TJ begins talking about how he rode all the way there on a bus to see his darling Jennifer Elizabeth Then he finds out she's married to this fella. He goes on to explain he almost forgot he's a Watson. And as you know... A Watson never gives up. 
Uh, uh, TJ, I, I think... I almost is. forgot about my dear old pappy and how the woman that he loved, the woman he wanted to marry, my mama, was already married to a fellow by the name of Jenkins. <laughs> Jenkins didn't want to give my mama up. So my pappy, being the man that he was, <laughs> called him out. Called him out. <laughs> That's right. Called him out. Uh, to talk. Uh-huh. Then he shot him. TJ has separated Johnny from the group during this speech, and at the end of his speech... Johnny collapses on the couch. TJ's decided he's going to stick around a few days to make sure Jennifer is really happy. He invites himself over to what would be Johnny and Jennifer's place for dinner. TJ says if all is as they say, well, then everything will be fine. But if they're not, well, you do remember that story I just told you about my pappy and a man named Jenkins, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> You got the knife, I got the gun. Come on, boy, we're gonna have a little fun. I'm a jealous man. Everybody, he's a jealous I man. <laughs> oh, Johnny, cheering him on. <laughs> I wonder if that kiss was worth it now. Yeah. <laughs> so we transition to Jennifer's apartment. And in the transition shot, we see a tall, modern-looking apartment building through a frame of trees. Chezzy D, our man in Cincy, found this one for us. This was a 20-story dormitory building, which was constructed in 1966 on the Edgecliff College campus. It has since been converted to the very posh Edgecliff private residences. It's a place you'd expect Jennifer to live. High-end, nice neighborhood. That shot was taken from a bridge on Cliff Drive in... You guessed it, Eden Park. Jennifer comes out of her bedroom. She's dressed in a long, formal evening gown, ready to greet everyone. The doorbell rings. And it's Johnny, standing there holding a bouquet of flowers. Yeah, I got him from a Hare Krishna group down in the lobby. <laughs> Another shot at Hare Krishna's. We had Buzzy talking about him in pilot part two. Yes. Let's go chase the Hare Krishna's out of the airport again. <laughs> And we got Fly Me to the Moon on the doorbell. Yes. Fly Me to the Moon, originally titled In Other Words, is a song written in 1954 by Bart Howard. Kay Ballard made the first recording of the song the year it was written. Frank Sinatra recorded it in 1964. And by the time Sinatra sang this song, there were already more than 100 other versions. Fly Me to the Moon let me play among the stars And let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars In other words, hold my hand Sinatra's recording became closely associated with NASA's Apollo space program. Fly Me to the Moon has also been recorded by Judy Garland, Tony Bennett, Ella Fitzgerald, Della Reese, Brenda Lee, Johnny Mathis, Edie Gourmet, and many more. A publisher tried to convince Bart Howard to change the words from Fly Me to the Moon to Take Me to the Moon. 
but Bart refused, and I'm so glad he did. In 1958, Edie Gourmet's recording reached number 20 in the Cashbox album charts, and it was nominated for an Emmy. In 1960, Peggy Lee sang it on The Ed Sullivan Show. People began referring to it as Fly Me to the Moon rather than In other words, Peggy Lee is the one who convinced Bart Howard to make the name change official. Sinatra's version, this is so cool, was played on a portable cassette player on the Apollo 10 mission, which orbited the moon. It was also played on Apollo 11 right before the first landing on the moon. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The eagle has landed. In other words, I love you. Fly Me to the Moon was also used for Mission Commander Neil Armstrong's memorial service in 2012. Jennifer takes the flowers and goes into the kitchen to put them in some water. Johnny follows her. This is our first time in Jennifer's apartment. So much of what we're about to see is iconic and gets called back in later episodes. We asked Tom about the creative process involved regarding Ms. Marlowe's apartment. Again, this show was just not coming out of my head. It was coming out of everybody's head. And like we might have been sitting in a room one night at two in the morning and we all had a couple of drinks and it was (laughs) we were tired. And somebody said, I got an idea. Jennifer has every electric gadget ever made and we won't say why. We all laugh. She just says, I have a friend in the appliance business. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's who her, Jennifer had a lot of friends in a lot yes. of different yes. And so we just they played on that. But you gotta remember that we were rewriting and rewriting and we would go till two, three in the morning. Johnny does some great physical comedy here as he discovers the step down into Jennifer's living room. And also there's a step down into the kitchen. This bit is so funny. And it all hinges on this idea of sunken rooms, which for a while was a big deal. It was all the rage to step down into your living space. And then all of a sudden, It wasn't. It just went away overnight. The concept of sunken room designs was prevalent in the 60s and 70s when nightclub owners started designing their sitting places in this style. Remember how discos had sunken dance floors with tables on platforms all around? Yeah, we can blame this one on disco. (laughs) Sunken living rooms became so popular, many Hollywood stars and producers adopted the sunken living room concept in their home. Their residences became the talk of the town. Realtor.com has traced the origin of the sunken living room back to Kansas-born architect Bruce Goff. In 1927, he designed a home for his teacher, and it included what he called a conversation pit. Which sounds so classy. (laughs) (laughs) I think you use pit in anything. Yeah, pit pit anywhere kind of (laughs) takes it down. There's an ancestral thing going on here. The Dick Van Dyke Show, which included Mary Tyler Moore, first aired in 1961, featuring a sunken living room as part of its set. It had become a big thing in the burbs, and the Dick Van Dyke Show reflected that. Also, Mary Tyler Moore had a sunken living room, which her show debuted in 1970. In post-war 1940s, ranch-style homes were becoming popular. Designing one with a sunken living room meant it could be taller without affecting the roof line. 
It also felt more spacious. Then it disappeared. Why did the sunken room craze evaporate? Well, we learned pretty quickly how dangerous it was. We discovered that people tend to be careless on stairs with fewer than three steps. A step or two up and down may look charming and grand, but they're a huge tripping hazard. As Johnny does such a good yes, job showing yes. us in this Every time episode. he passes over those. <laughs> it's hilarious. Okay, so Tom, we got to know, were you guys taking shots at sunken living rooms? Somebody suggested to be sunken because, you know, it's such a stupid thing and... It was probably thrown in there for that. And that could have, again, I say that could have been the art director who came in and said, you know, Jennifer has to have a sunken. And I wasn't privy to any of those conversations about how the set would be designed or that was all Hugh. And I mean, it was all Hugh. It was, Hugh was, didn't have a coordinating producer, a co-producer or anything. Yeah, he would talk to the actors. He would talk to me. He would talk to Dial just about stuff. But then they, it all went through him. Well, Johnny follows Jennifer into the kitchen, and Jennifer's kitchen is full of appliances and all sorts of the latest kitchen gadgets. We start over here with the hot dogger, the food processor, the toaster oven, the coffee maker, the can opener, the cooler, the peanut butter maker, the mixer, and of course, the blender. It doesn't really look like a kitchen. <laughs> this a kitchen? Yes. What did you think it was? Looks like a science exhibit at the World's Fair. <laughs> Did she say hot dogger? I believe she did. The hot dogger. Well, we had to look that up. You know it. The hot dogger was a Presto product introduced in the 60s. It's a pressure cooker for hot dogs, and it can hold up to six hot dogs. For the person who has absolutely everything. <laughs> get him a hot dogger. You can get him a hot dogger. You can still get him. <laughs> and I actually said, hold on a minute. Did she say peanut butter maker? Oh, yes. <laughs> Early peanut butter making machines were developed by Joseph Lambert, who had worked at John Harvey Kellogg's Battle Creek Sanitarium, and Dr. Ambrose Straub, who obtained a patent for a peanut butter making machine in 1903. All they really are is a pretty aggressive blender that you put peanuts in and it shoots out goo. You can still find peanut butter making machines on Amazon. They range anywhere from $50 to $500, or you can go buy a jar of Skippy. That sounds best to me, because yeah. when I was looking at those uh, peanut butter making machines, I bet they're a mess Mess to try to clean up. Yeah, they've got to be. That'd but be a pain. Anyway, if you want to go check one out, be like Jennifer. Get yourself a peanut butter making machine. Jennifer reminds Johnny... That they are very, very happy. And Johnny asks, what happens if this doesn't work? Uh, well, then I'll just tell TJ the truth and let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm the chips. <laughs> he is the chips. <laughs> And, and this sets up the greatest callback later in the show. It's a funny line here, but it's a way funnier line when we get it called back. Jennifer thanks Johnny for helping her. Oh, well, it's nothing really. No, it's really quite special. I just hope that I can make it up to you somehow. The doorbell rings with Fly Me to the Moon tune, and Johnny grabs Jennifer, and he's in the moment. He proceeds to be taken in as he pulls Jennifer close. I think he thought he was hearing that in his head, the Fly Me to the Moon. I don't know that it was... I don't... 
<laughs> I don't know. He was caught up in the moment. Johnny offers to get the door, and again, we get to physical comedy with the step down and then back up. And as much mileage as they get out of that sunken step, Tom says, here again, we're looking at funny people being given the chance to be funny. That's probably Howard. That's probably everybody on the set uh, during rehearsals. You know, Howard maybe tripped once and we all laughed. And then Howard said, well, let's keep it in. Or Hugh said, let's keep that in. And then we played it up, obviously. They open the door and the whole gang is there, minus Les and Herb. As they come in, Carlson says that they all came over in Herb's camper. (laughs) He's been driving that through Cincinnati. That's the first time we've seen Venus in this episode. Venus turned out for the evening with his gold V pen on the left lapel of his shirt, wearing a Kelly green one-piece jumpsuit with rhinestones on his pant legs. And I have to imagine Tim Reed kept the most strict diet through this series to fit in these (laughs) outfits that he wears. He looks good. Oh, you can't get away with an ounce of body fat. Slim and trim. They all come in and they're gawking at Jennifer's apartment. It's pretty posh. They're handing their coats to Johnny as they come in. Mr. Carlson, uh, how much do receptionists make? Uh, It's none of your business. Remember from Mama's review, we found out that Jennifer is making $24,000 a year. Or just under a hundred grand in 2020 dollars. I felt like there was something familiar about this apartment. It had a look and a layout that reminded me of apartments I'd seen on other MTM shows. We asked Tom if this might be recycled from Mary Tyler Moore for use at KTLA. They could have brought that all over. Because it, 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 I wouldn't have doubted it. Because they're so cheap back then. Not cheap, but they tried to be so on the budget, you know, and that would have been, let's just bring our rotis set or whatever. Those were all stored under stage, stage two. Les comes in and he hands a box with a bow on top to Johnny. He says that Herb's on his way, but they thought it best not to overload the elevator. And he tells Jennifer this is quite a place she's got. Mr. Carlson has a drink in one hand. He leans on the counter that faces into the kitchen, not seeing the control board, and he accidentally pushes some buttons. You know, Jennifer. Turning on appliances. Through the opening into the kitchen, we see the lid go shooting up <laughs> off of the blender. Now, Art is able to get everything shut off. We've had fun with special effects on WKRP, but this one worked pretty well. We wondered if Tom knew how that one was accomplished. Oh, they probably put air in the thing and then popped it up. And it That's was, what I was wondering, yeah. if it was just an air blast. That, but it, oh, yeah, it looked so good. <laughs> and I love the control panel that we put in it. The doorbell rings. Johnny says he'll get it. Once again, he hits (laughs) that step as he goes. They get it every single time, and it does not get old. No. Herb enters. He hands a six-pack of beer to Johnny. I had a couple on the way up. And this sixer only has two beers left (laughs) in it. Herb sucked down four of them in the elevator. Johnny tells Herb that he can put his coat in the bedroom. Jennifer's bedroom? Yeah. Notice how they've separated yes. Herb out. Now we know why Herb was arriving why alone. Why he came in alone. Johnny took everybody else's coat back to the bedroom. But now since it's just Herb and Johnny's busy with something else, he says, why don't you just go on back? It may take a while. 
He is savoring every second of this walk, taking off his jacket. He braces himself in the doorways. And I'm not sure if he's savoring the moment or if he's a little intimidated. I don't know if he can cross that threshold. Maybe he's having to work up some courage. Yeah, I don't know if he can cross that threshold. He can't go in there. Andy, Carlson, Jennifer, and Venus, they're all standing around the liquor cart, and Andy makes a toast. Here's to the loving couple. Uh When's uh, PJ scheduled to arrive? Cue the doorbell. What the hell is that? There is a madcap feel to this. The way this whole apartment scene is choreographed, just bam, 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 one thing after another, after another, and you're just reduced to tears laughing. Yes. So Jennifer and Johnny, the happy couple, head over to welcome TJ into their home. Jennifer opens the door. There's TJ standing there, guitar in one hand, and the same bouquet of flowers that Johnny walked in with is hanging in the other. I got these from some bald-headed guys down in there. <laughs> bald-headed guys. <laughs> TJ, TJ, not as uh, continental as Mr. Mr. Fever. Well, Jennifer reintroduces TJ to the group. So, Mr. TJ, you're from Appalachia, eh? <laughs> this is the update of the Chai Chai Roger Blaze. Yes. TJ sits down on the sofa. Carlson has a seat, and he asks TJ what kind of work he does in the shine business tj goes on to explain that he'd really like to get more into the music business writing songs making records i mean a man can't run shine all his life yeah i've heard that uh, about that yeah (laughs) yes carlson's heard that about that i read about it in business insider or something (laughs) i think the term moonshine traditionally refers to any clear, unaged whiskey. Using the term to refer to illegal alcohol can be dated to 1785 in Gross's Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue. Oh, they call it that good old mountain dew, and them that refuse it are few. I'll hush up my mug if you fill up my jug with that good old mountain in the U.S., run and shine means to transport or sell illegal liquor. Shine is anything made without health inspections or tax stamps. Sometimes illegal shine is made in stills constructed from old car radiators. Contamination is common. Be careful buying this stuff. Tainted moonshine has been responsible for causing blindness, madness, and death. Is that just what women told their husbands to keep them from drinking? Mm-hmm. No, it really <laughs> happened. <laughs> the end of Prohibition put a lot of shine runners out of work. These guys had souped-up cars and incredible driving skills. They started to compete in races on weekends. Eventually, these groups of racing former shine runners created NASCAR. Moonshine still refers to illegally produced alcohol. But you might have seen those little cans of moonshine on the counter at the liquor store or at the grocery store. The Food and Drug Administration has allowed it as a name for legal alcohol because, as they say, the name is fun and whimsical. Now, remember on the Waltons, the uh, Baldwin sisters. The Baldwin sisters. The Baldwin sisters with Daddy's Recipe. Yes, that was some shine. Johnny comes into the living room carrying a beer for TJ, and we get his awkward entrance as he once more. (laughs) forgets about that step down. But seriously, it works every time. It works. And he pulls it off. He He does. He tries to look cool. It is a complete surprise to him every time it happens. (laughs) And it is so well done. 
All right, so Herb comes running back into the room. Herb has now been to the inner chamber. He has witnessed the the holiest of holies, Jennifer's bedroom. What a bedroom! Hey, John, have you seen that bedroom? And Herb is not aware that TJ has arrived. (laughs) He's going to blow it! (laughs) Of course my husband has seen the bedroom. Jennifer sits on the couch next to TJ with Johnny on the other side. She asks TJ to sing one of his songs. It was Dell and a dealer and a dog named Jake and a cat named Kalamazoo. Left the city in a pickup truck, gonna make some dreams come true. Yeah, they rolled out west with a wild sunset and a coyote basin. Dell and a dealer and a dog named Jake and a cat named Kalamazoo. This is nuts. This guy isn't buying any of this. Herb, why don't you just relax and enjoy yourself? This guy's good. So why don't you record that song? The cat was cool, and he never said a mumbling word. Dell and the Dealer is on the album Rusty Old Halo, which came out right about the time this episode was coming out, and that's the reason Hoyt was there, was to promote the single. Well, as Hoyt sing, or as TJ singing, I should say, Herb tells about a horrible dream that he had last night. I dreamt that John and Jennifer really were married. There were all these little kids running around. They all had on sweatshirts and dark glasses and three-day beards. And, <laughs> and they all started chasing me, and all the little Johnnies caught me and tied me down, and I started screaming for help, and then all the little Jennifers just ignored me, and then they, then they grabbed my white belt and just started beating the hell. Beating him with his white belt. <laughs> I love that. I don't know why they did something on that, though, that kind of cracked me up. It was right in the middle when he was talking. They had a nice little group shot, kind of a medium shot, and oh. then they zoomed right in on Herb as right he was telling face. that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think maybe the cameraman forgot that he was supposed to do that zoom and then picked it up right in the middle of there. So TJ asked Johnny if he plays guitar. Johnny blows it. He says he plays a little. I got one back at the house. When he says this, <laughs> Jennifer does the greatest little move. She just, real short movement, just rocks her head back very quickly and smacks it against Johnny's chest. Well, then TJ, he asks if they have any kids. Yes. No. I mean, they're adopted. They're staying with friends. Uh, they're they're fully grown, most of them. Relatively mature. <laughs> Johnny says most of them. <laughs> <laughs> are fully grown. <laughs> How many is he talking about? <laughs> oh, well, TJ is not buying this act. What in the world is going on around here? I'm sorry, TJ. Let's be careful, darling. <laughs> this has all been a lie. We're not really married. You mean you're living together and you're not married? And here comes our callback. Chips are falling. <laughs> Johnny's on his feet. Jennifer comes clean. She tells him they're not really together. And now TJ wants to know why she didn't just tell him straight out. I don't know. I guess I didn't want to hurt you. TJ grabs his jacket in a huff. He walks out. He slams the door. Andy chases him. Andy's very interested in possibly recording this guy. And I think probably he's picked a bad time here to talk about this. But as <laughs> TJ storms out of the room, Andy's trying to chase him down to talk to him about his music. Jennifer takes off after TJ and Herb. You can hear Herb going, Jenny, 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 let, let him go. Don't. Jenny, Pooh. 
Jenny, <laughs> let him go. He actually calls her Jenny Pooh. But she chases TJ out, gets to the elevator just as the doors are closing, and she pulls them open. There is another man in the elevator with TJ. All right, now, Tom, who is that guy on the elevator? But that guy was Bud Sapien, and, and Buzz was our stage manager. And during rehearsals, Buzz, we didn't have a person cast yet. So Buzz would stand in for the person. <laughs> and we just said, hey, Buzz is great. Let's just use him. And that's how he got on the, I remember that. Okay. He was our stage manager. He was a great um, guy. Not an actor, not a comedian, just the stage manager? Oh, yeah, yeah. He would. He yeah. was... That was not not he was not supposed to be on the show, but we just all laughed at him at that what he was doing. The man in the elevator is played by Buzz Sapien, and he steals the entire episode. He's hilarious, and Buzz is not an actor; he's the stage manager. Well, he should have been an actor. He was born in 1947 as Hector R. Sapien in Los Angeles. And Buzz's job, if you're a credit watcher like I am, he is in every show as stage manager for WKRP in Cincinnati. He was associate director for Head of the Class from 1986 to 1991, the new WKRP 1991 to 92, the Nanny 1993 to 95, the Wayans Brothers 95 to 99, and Hannah Montana in 2006. Buzz stayed busy. All right, so falling downstairs, Flipping over chairs, and now the stage manager turns up with a pretty juicy <laughs> part in the elevator. Now, since Tom worked with both Will McKenzie as director on this one and Rod Daniels as director on Gordon Sims, we asked him for his take on their directing styles. I would say Rod was more technical and and, and Will was more of an actor's uh, director. Um, but but he wasn't as technical as probably Rod. One of the funny stories was, okay, everybody set. This is Will McKenzie on the set. All right, everybody set and cut. No, it's action. You're supposed to say action. <laughs> and he's, oh, yeah, 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 action. It was very funny. He was very, very funny. Jennifer says that she should have told TJ the truth from the beginning. She wants to talk to TJ. Would you please just step out here for a minute? The other man in the elevator starts <laughs> to come out, but TJ pushes him back, asks him to hold the button for the elevator, and he is watching intently. And chomping on that gum. He does some good gum chewing Oh, here. that gum meters the whole thing. He keeps it going, and it's so funny. And I don't think he blinks the whole time. No, He's watching no, he what's is unfolding. so intent. So Jennifer tells TJ that what they said was so long ago, he can't hold her to that. TJ agrees. He looks over at Buzz there standing in the elevator. Uh, you want to take it on down? That's okay. <laughs> Buzz That's okay. is too into this. All of a sudden, he's got a soap opera right in front of right? him. So he just keeps watching the two of them. I am really sorry if I've hurt your feelings in any way. Well, hell, that's all right, I guess. I, I haven't been exactly telling you the truth either. Really? Well, tell her. <laughs> TJ goes on to tell Jennifer that he wants to be in the music business, but he needs a demo tape. He thought maybe since Jennifer was in the radio business, she could help. That was the real reason he came to Cincinnati. Can you help him? <laughs> <laughs> Poor Buzz. <laughs> 
He had very few lines, but oh gosh, he delivered them so well and he looked so sincere. The man is leaning out of the elevator now, keeping his finger on the button, but he's getting closer to the two having the conversation. I, uh, I really don't know anyone in the record business, but I'm not totally without influence. I bet that's right. <laughs> He's such an awesome line, and he delivers it so perfectly. TJ and Jennifer head back to her apartment. They're talking about how they can have a tape made of his songs and send it to Nashville, and the elevator doors are closing. Is that it? Don't we all feel better now? Oh, man, I would have given him a standing ovation right there. Oh, he was so funny. But that's right. We come back. We're in the studio. Johnny, Jennifer, and Andy are in what would probably be the production room behind the window. Behind that window. And then you got TJ on a stool, Uh and he's sitting there in what is our control room normally. And it looks like they've just pulled the mic out that would have been the DJ mic and put it on a stand in front of him. Yes, and he is sitting on a stool with headphones on. He begins to sing Della and the Dealer. It was Della and a dealer and a dog named Jake and a cat named Kalamazoo. Left the city in a pickup truck, gonna make some dreams come true. It rolled out of west with a wild sunset in the coyote basement. Again, because we gotta promote this song. That's the reason Hoyt's there. This is our only scene in the control booth, and nobody's DJing. They're using it as a recording studio, so it really doesn't have anything to do with radio. Now, we've heard that CBS was pushing Hugh Wilson to go with more people stories. We asked Tom if that attitude maybe influenced this script. Well, if they said it, they said it to Hugh, and then Hugh didn't say it to us because Hugh wanted us to be as free thinking as we wanted to be. You know, the more I listen to you know, Tim and what was going on that I was unaware of, the more it was kind of to protect, I think, the the writers to just feel free to do what they wanted to do. Closing credits ran while TJ sang. The regular end of the show song was not played. This would be the first time we haven't had Tom Wells taking us out, even when we had Detective playing. Tom Wells still took it on out. And the stage was set when the lights went out. There was death in Tucson town. Two shadows ran for the far back door, and one stayed on the ground. Before we close things down for this episode, we want to take a couple more moments with Tom. Here's the thing. Tom Chihawk is about done with WKRP. The network concerns about the Gordon Sims episode, the move back to MTM, almost getting canceled. It led CBS to force Hugh Wilson to shake things up in his writer's room. Tom and Emily Marshall were both given their walking papers. Blake Hunter and Bill Dial would continue into the second season, but not as story editors. Bill becomes a producer, and Blake moves to executive story consultant. Now, Tom goes on to have an amazing writing career, but leaving WKRP was tough. It was a great year for a lot of reasons. He told us he has another fond memory from that season. My wife was pregnant that whole year with my second kid. And on the, when we shot the last show, which was um, Gordon Sims, I was going home with her. She was having an easy time with this one. It was born on March 9th. That's why I'll never forget. The last show was shot March 9th, 1979, or probably March 8th. 
because he was born in the morning on the 9th. Uh, I was dancing with Stella Stevens at the rap party and then rushed off to the hospital to have a baby. <laughs> so that's that, that was my uh, experience of having my second child. In honor of Tom's interest in telling backstories, we decided to save one of Tom's most amazing stories for last. Tom has a disarming and casual way of telling a story. Then in the midst of many of his stories, he will drop these huge, iconic names that just make your jaw hang open. This is Tom's origin story. This is how he got his very first writing project registered with the Writers Guild Association. It was a purchased script, but it never got produced. Listen to why. Let's see. It was the last year of the Mary Tyler Moore show. So it was my first year as a gopher at MTM. So it would have been what year? 70, 78. It was probably 78. Whenever Mary Tyler Marshall rapped. And I would go home every night and I would write scripts and I would, I would spec scripts and I would give them to, because I could give them literally to the producers of the Bob Newhart show, of the Tony Randall show. I could give, I mean, this was a, the luckiest break a writer or a wanted be person who wanted to be in Hollywood could possibly have. I could, this was the, the, the stable of comedy, you know, the gold standard of comedy was MTM right back then. And I had all these producers, I was getting their laundry and washing their cars and getting their dinners and lunches and everything. And so I would give them a, you know, I'd go home, write three or four days, I'd write a spec script, give it to somebody. So the producers of the Tony Randall show or the uh, Bob Newhart show were Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus. And one day I gave Tom and Jay one of the scripts I wrote because I was actually really assigned to this Bob Newhart show. And one day I'm sitting in the audience watching a rehearsal and I see Patchett walk in and he's looking around and he sees me and I'm scared to death. Oh, what did I do? I forgot to wash this car or something. And he comes running up to me and said, this script you gave me is really good. I'm going to give it to Ed Weinberger and uh, to the guys over at the MTM show because I had written a spec Mary Tyler Moore show. And I said, fantastic. And about two weeks later, I walked into Brooks' office or somebody's office and they said, could you come in after you get our lunches and pitch other ideas? Because we already have a show that was close to what you had written. I said, OK. And so I pitched an idea and weeks went by and it was getting they were down to two, you know, four, three. They only had like two shows left open because they were going to write the finale. And so they only had one show open. And I pitched this show, Mary and Lou Go Fishing. And they said, okay, that's going to be the second to last show. And then I was like over the moon and I was going to get in the writer's guild and I was going to get an agent. And then one day, I don't know who it was who came to me. It might have been Jim Brooks and said, we can't, we're not shooting your show because Johnny Carson called up Grant or called up Brooks or somebody and said, it's, I really would like to be a part of the Mary Tyler Moore show. I would like a part on the show. And they suddenly scrambled to write a show for Carson. And it was that famous show, 
the second to last show that should have been my show. Johnny's coming to Mary's apartment for a party and the power goes off in Minneapolis and they're sitting there and he's in the dark the entire time. And while the entire rehearsal was going on, I was sitting up in the stands, sitting next to Jen- Johnny Carson, smoking his Paul Malls, saying, this should have been my show, Johnny. <laughs> this should, I, to myself, I never would I'd say anything to him. But that's that was the beginning of my career. And Brooks came to me and said, don't worry about it. You're going to get an agent out of this. You, you know, you're going to get into the writer's guild. Things will happen. And from that, I got my assignment with Gary Goldberg and Hugh Wilson to do my Tony Randall show. And then the Tony Randall show was produced. And from the Tony Randall show, I got WKRP. And from WKRP, I got 38 years of writing under my belt. A lot of luck, a lot of luck and a lot of uh, right timing. And um, I got to really be thankful for the people that, uh, you know, lifted me up and moved me on. <laughs> Thanks again to Tom Chihon. Yes, thank you, Tom. All right, Donna, what is up for next week? Next week, we'll be discussing young Master Carlson. Mr. Carlson's son disappears from Prussian Valley Military Academy. When he turns up at the station with Mama Carlson, he is put to work at the station and promptly gets into trouble. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. Thanks for joining us. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us WKRPcast at gmail.com. And remember, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!